Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the finance makes my brain hurt, and that's while I still have money edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Coming up on the show, about a month ago, I interviewed Carrie Fridman and Colin Kammerer, two academics who study the psychology and neuroscience of financial decision-making. They now have a new paper out that aggregates the available literature on this topic, and it also suggests a research agenda for what's left to be known. And here it is. So first of all, Carrie, Colin, thanks for coming in and talking to us. Our pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Uh, So as you note, in the beginning of your paper, behavioral finance has been around for quite some time, the study of how cognitive biases affect decision-making and finance. Your paper goes a step further. Uh, What was the goal? Uh, Well, the main goal was there's been a tremendous amount of new data on psychology and financial decision-making at every level from households, CEOs. And also psychologists have not participated in this uh, as much as one might think. A lot of most of the work is really people in finance and economics using psychological ideas. So this particular uh, audience um, is people who study cognitive science and probably don't know much about finance, and they don't even know how much interesting stuff is going on in other disciplines. So coming at it from the other direction, using a bigger data set, Carrie, does that that sound right? Yeah, yeah, that was definitely one of the major goals. I think it's also a useful article for economists too, because this this idea of behavioral finance has been around for a while. But it's it's kind of gotten gotten some traction. A lot of new theories have been presented. But what I think this new data can do is to kind of help constrain it a little bit and kind of discipline the the theories, um, which will ultimately help them develop into the the right direction, I think. Okay. But before we dive into the specifics of the article, uh, I have a follow-up question on what you guys just said, which is, uh, have you found it frustrating uh, in your own careers by the lack of coordination between the disciplines? Because this is a topic that I think uh, economists, psychologists, neuroscientists have all talked about at some point. I'm curious to know what your experience has been, Colin. Yeah. In the, in the early days, my, my PhD was 1981. It was completely frustrating. Basically, if you went to a meeting where there were people from different disciplines, the psychologist thought you weren't being psychological enough. And the economist thought it's ridiculous. It, you know, financial <laughs> decisions are so important that people will um, figure out what to do or they'll get the best advice and it couldn't be the case that they don't you know, know what their interest rates are or they're not saving effectively. So there was a complete non, non-communication um, for decades, really, until maybe 1990. What happened in 1990? People started feeling less threatened? Uh, well, I think um, the first there were some concrete ideas from Tversky and Kahneman and many other psychologists about you know, exactly mathematically what kind of mistakes people might be making. So there was a precision. And then um, Dick Thaler, you know, who was sort of an important figure in behavioral finance, you know, pointed out a couple of very clear anomalies like stocks that have done horribly that one year bounce back. And it was hard to explain that with standard theories. And so a few 
a few clear statistical demonstrations became the focus of discussion. Yeah, worth noting that uh, Kahneman would later win the uh, economics Nobel for the work that he did with uh, Tversky, so it paid off. Uh, yes. Kerry, what's been uh, your experience? Well, I, I should admit I've come to this a little bit later in the game than Colin has, so I've, I've uh, benefited from, I think, a lot of the early fights yes. uh, or controversies. So you're dating Colin now is what you're doing. <laughs> I think I'm just giving, giving perspective, I think, I'll is take, what I'm doing. I'll take credit. Um, but, but even so, there's, there's certainly some difficulties, I think, with this type of work. I think one huge issue that still probably has gotten better since, you know, over the last 20, 25 years or so is the language that people use to talk about this type of stuff. So I think one reason it was difficult to kind of execute this type of research is just because psychologists, neuroscientists, economists use, you know, different language for perhaps the same type of substantial argument. And uh, one nice thing that's kind of been happening over the last 10 years, I think, is this kind of unification of language. And it's been through kind of a mathematical discipline. And I think that's a very nice thing because it grounds, you know, a lot of the theory, but also it's a kind of a common language that um, people in these uh, different disciplines can speak. All right. Well, long may it continue, both the anti-jargonization <laughs> and the uh, improved coordination. Okay. Let's get right into the paper. Sounds good? Yes. Sounds good. All right. Uh, you divide the paper uh, into four parts, uh, financial decision-making uh, first with respect to household finance, then in trading financial assets, then asset pricing, and then finally corporate management. So we're just going to do these one by one. All right. Uh, the first one, household finance. Uh Colin, uh, what do you see as the main contribution uh, of the paper uh, in terms of household finance? Um, household finance has really boomed. Some of it is around the time of the financial crisis and creation in the U.S. of the CFPB, um, but also uh, around the same time in England, there was something called the Behavioral Insights Team that was sure. designed CFPB, to- real quick for our overseas listeners, yeah. Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. Yes. And so a number of regulatory agencies kind of around the same time said- you know, the, the, these decisions people have to make involving complicated mortgages are, are really hard. Uh, companies sometimes help and sometimes hurt or make it difficult. And um, th there, was a, there was an interest in actually scientifically trying to really understand what's going on and getting the, psycholo the psychological model of the, the household, trying to figure out credit cards, retirement, mortgages, trying to, you know, get a better theory of what's really going on there. And so that led to a little bit of psychological development and also just a lot of data. Yeah, I guess what's interesting about this too is that the companies that sell these products, credit cards, mortgages, they've had essentially decades of trial and error to figure out what works in terms of selling their products, but consumers might not always have been aware of the reasons, the rationale that they employ in actually buying them. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So there's kind of a mismatch between extremely clever organizations that are able to you know, kind of hide fees in certain ways or put in teaser rates and have, you know, literally tens of millions of observations. And then, you know, each consumer is kind of born, you know, and has to try to figure it out on their own. So um, there's been there's been quite a quite a bit of mismatch between what consumers are able to, to figure out and the quality of decisions and, and the natural, I would say, the natural profit instincts of companies. Not that there aren't some companies that are, you know, trying to, to generate efficiency gains, which are profitable and benefit consumers. So there's some differences in, in approach. Okay. Uh, let's talk about uh, the ways that households actually do go about making financial decisions. I was intrigued by one point in the paper saying that the neuroscience uh, on this has shown that people get a little bit more patient as they age. Uh, I guess they tend to be more impulsive when they're young, uh, and then later on, they get better. Yeah. So so there, a lot of things change in, in the natural developmental life cycle, which is a term we used to refer to, every, you know, childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, getting old. And often there's a kind of U-shaped curve. For example, in 
in um, bank mistakes, like, you know, you you don't have enough money, you get it charged to uh, an overage fee, an overdraft fee. You see a lot of overdraft fees when people are in their eight, 18, 20, 25, it starts to go down, and then it goes up again when they're 70, 75, 80. And so the early part of the mistake curve is um, just not knowing any better and not paying attention. The later part of the mistake curve is forgetfulness and getting old. And, it, and the curve lacks actually a tremendous amount like car accidents. You get a lot of car accidents among new drivers who are mm-hmm. just getting used to it. And then you get car accidents among older drivers who have, you know, their sensory motor skills are just kind of winding down. So like in a lot of things, I guess, are we are we sort of at our peak financial decision-making powers when we're in middle age, essentially? Yes, exactly. Right. Okay. There's also an idea here uh, that I guess is from psychology uh, saying that if you imagine your future self, that you'll make better decisions in the present. Yeah. So there's some really interesting neuroscience indicating that in economics, we used to, we think about time preference or time discounting, you know, how much weight do you put on the future compared to the present as just sort of a trait. You know, some people are, can delay gratification and they really imagine the future. But how people value the future is a psychological process and it actually kind of moves around a lot and seems to be actually correlated with things like memory. Uh, but it's also subject to a certain amount of uh, plasticity or manipulation. So if you get people to think about their future selves or in quite a few studies, if you get them to uh, think about a, a future date on which a particular event is going to occur or what are you going to actually spend money with, on in the future, that actually tends to make people more patient. You know, it kind of brings the future closer to the present. And they save a little more. And Exactly. And patience is, is uh, one of the, the, the strongest correlates of a lot of good things in you know, in human life, more patient people go to college and get educated. They kind of stick with it. They save more for retirement. They're more conscientious about, uh, you know, following the rules and not making dumb mistakes. There's some uh, interesting uh, economics research um, on the period before the crisis uh, showing a correlation between people who had lower incomes and the propensity to borrow in order to either buy their homes or to take out additional mortgages to then, you know, to essentially uh, fund consumption instead of funding something else, funding investment, education, whatever. Um, I guess I'm wondering uh, if that kind of, uh, if that scenario also has a kind of psychological impact on the way that people make decisions in terms of taking out mortgages that they can't afford or borrowing money that they won't be able to pay back later. Yeah, I think in household finance, I think the story can kind of be boiled down to two things, which is how much people know and sort of believe. And there's often an ex- extraordinary high degrees of financial illiteracy. Like on surveys, about a third of people say one stock is less risky than buying a whole bunch of stocks and having diversification. They really misunderstand very basic principles of risk. Uh, so some of it is know-how and literacy. The other is kind of execution and details. And can you you know, interact with a financial institution and buy and get the best product for yourself. And part of the story in the financial crisis was, um, you know, a change in in underwriting standards so that people could get these so-called liar loans where you just say how much your income is. And it was a combination of optimism and bad incentives where, you know, people got into houses they really couldn't afford and mortgage brokers said, oh, don't worry, don't worry, the house prices are going to keep going up, you'll be fine. Let's move on to the uh, second category. This is the trading of financial assets. Uh, there's all kinds of effects that we can talk about here, disposition effect, repurchase effect. But Carrie, uh, what do you think are some of the most important things that we should be talking about? Yeah. So, you know, we, we talk about these two in particular because there's some recent experiments that actually Colin and I have both worked on uh, with respect to both of these effects. But just before I, I dive into that, you know, a little more general overview of what where we are in this literature, there's 
you know, kind of a, a, a rational model, which uh, has been put forth, which discusses what investors should do, kind of normative benchmarks, which would be kind of an ideal balance of risk and return, and, you know, um, quickly incorporating new information uh, into their uh, beliefs and then therefore decisions. But over the last 20 years, there's been kind of a mounting bit, bit of evidence that shows that, uh, you know, these indi individual investors are not acting according to this type of rational benchmark. And so uh, two of these uh, effects um, that are probably the most robust, at least the disposition effect is, is what I would call the most robust fact here. And what is that? Which is, yeah, which is this, which is this idea that investors typically will sell risky assets, whether it be stocks, real estate, at a capital gain more often than they'll sell it at a capital loss. So they'll they'll sell a winner, they won't sell a loser. They won't sell, exactly. And so that that differential, basically the difference between their propensity to sell at a gain versus a loss is what's been dubbed this disposition effect. It started in the late 70s and the seminal paper was in the mid 80s. And and it's been around, it's been known, it's been replicated for you know many, many years in the, in the uh, experimental laboratory many different um, international markets, many different types of investors. So this is not just individual, it's also professional mutual fund managers also exhibit this. And so the reason it's kind of gotten a lot of interest in, in finance is because it seems to be a mistake. And Just because the stock went down doesn't mean it can't go down further. Uh, that's right. And, and there's actually some evidence that it systematically may actually go down uh, further because it's gone down, this right. idea of momentum, at least in the U.S. stock market. There's another reason it could be a bad thing just because of taxes. So the kind of tax optimal strategy here is you want to sell your losers quickly and, and kind of capitalize on that tax credit, and then you want to hold off on on selling your winners. Now, you know, all of this is just empirical evidence documenting the effect. And so recently, the literature has moved a little bit towards trying to understand the reason uh, why people do this. And so there's uh, there's an experiment that Colin and I and co-authors ran where we would have uh, subjects come into the lab and trade in an artificial stock market while they would have their brain scanned. And then the first thing we do is, is see if we can generate this type of behavior in the, in the fMRI scanner to make sure that we're actually studying something that's mimicking what's actually going on in the real world. And we do find that. We're, we're you know, replicating things that have been found in the past. But the novel part of this is to try to understand what's the psychological and neural mechanism that generates this type of trading behavior. And one theory in particular that we tested with this idea called the realization utility hypothesis. It's a mouthful. What it's a mouthful. <laughs> so let me try to unpack. So I'll start with realization utility. So this idea that instead of just getting utility from, from consuming things, which is kind of what the traditional economic model uh, states, you also get a utility or kind of a, a, a burst of happiness just from the act of selling a stock at a gain. Like a job well done. Like, like a job well done. Like a, like, like a hedonic yeah. kick goes off in your, in your mind. And more or less, this is actually what we find in the brain. Uh, so we find an area of the brain called the ventral striatum actually fires. Uh, it's activated more so when subjects are selling a gain compared to when they hold it. So the interesting part from an economic point of view is that there's no difference in the wealth that's created from this type of uh, transaction, right? The idea that you already have the gain embedded in, in your portfolio is independent of whether you sell it. And so, and so acting on this sale and then activating this this kind of area of the, of, the, of the brain called the ventral striatum seems to deliver this signal, which we interpret as kind of a realization utility signal. You know, overall, I would say this is, uh, it's useful to get at this at the neural level because this is a theory which is um, kind of unorthodox, but also very hard to test with just data from kind of a, a standard economist toolkit. So that's where kind of the neural data came in handy uh, in this study. What's interesting about this too is that that mechanism could be useful in other walks of life, right? In other words, feeling good about a job well done 
uh, is perfectly fine in a lot of realms outside of finance, right? In finance, it can really kill you. You know, you can make the wrong decision if you're afraid to admit that you bet on a losing stock early. And what ends up happening is that you stay betting on a much bigger loser as time goes on and the stock keeps going down. Um, so it's interesting that 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 dichotomy between where that's useful and where it's not. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think I think this is a stable personality trait. Uh, the evidence isn't there yet to make that statement in general, but I think you see this type of behavior in all different facets of life. I think it's related to this idea of sunk cost. You know, you're waiting for the subway, you've waited for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and you say, okay, I'm going to wait five more minutes, then I'm going to go. But, you know, the idea is you just always want to make your decisions based on the expectation of the future, not on the cost that you've borne in the past. You know, one little little add-on I want to say about this is because this may not be the optimal thing to do in the financial realm, uh, we've done a little bit of follow-up work to try to see if we could um, so-called de-bias this type of effect. And one thing we found that was a pretty simple fix was you just make it harder for the investor to actually compute whether the stock that he's holding is at a gain or a loss. The way you do this is just by removing uh, or at least making less salient the price at which they actually purchase the stock. So in this sense, it makes it harder to, you know. To know if by this point it looks like a winner or a loser. Right, right. Or just to know whether or not I made the wrong decision in the first place. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I do want to ask one more question about this category before we move on, though. The likelihood that we're going to extrapolate from past trends into the future, that what just happened is necessarily indicative of what's going to happen next. Human beings seem to do that uh, as well. And in finance, that also can kill you. Yeah, definitely. So this idea of extrapolation, so people you know, taking past history and then believing that it's going to actually uh, generate a future that looks just like it I, is, I think, rampant in, in human psychology. And it's beginning to um, become a very important ingredient in a lot of theories in, in behavioral finance now. And so I think it becomes extra important to really test this idea uh, and so one recent study we talk about here is where we'll actually see whether humans' pattern detection mechanisms in an area which is independent of the stock market, for instance, a very low-level experimental task where someone just has to classify whether they see a square or a circle on the screen. And we tell them that this sequence is unpredictable. We then you know, incentivize them to actually classify these stimuli accurately, and they tend to exhibit a type of bias where they'll predict that if a square is appeared four times in a row, then they'll you know, predict the next a square. one is a square. The interesting part, I think, is that those subjects who exhibit this pattern detection mechanism most are the same ones that actually exhibit the strongest extrapolative beliefs in a separate stock market test. So it seems to be kind of a stable trait that was um, you know, so-called hardwired in perhaps a long time ago and is now showing up in other realms where it may not be advantageous. Okay. Um, and one thing that, that Carrie's really pioneered in his work and in collaboration with me and others is also that there may be there may be different behavioral patterns which really have a fundamental single mechanism to them. So another thing we've studied is called the regret repurchase hypothesis. And the idea is, you know, you, you buy Intel at 40 and it goes up to 50 and you sell. If it keeps going up to 60 and you think you should rebuy it, people really hate to do that. You know, like I... It, it, it reminds them of the mistake they made of selling kind of too early at the same time, even if they may have had a good capital gain. If Intel goes 40 to 50 and you sell and it goes down to 45, they're much more eager to re- repurchase because it feels like, oh, I'm, get, you know, I'm getting back on the ground floor again after the dip and the correction. And um, this is something that's not nearly as well supported empirically in lots of data as the winner-loser disposition type effect. Uh, but it turns out that neurally you get a very similar driver 
And in our experiments, the people who exhibit a disposition effect of selling winners quickly, hanging on to losers, also exhibit a strong regret effect, uh, which wouldn't, you know, no theory said that was the case, no theory that it wasn't the case. It just, and so that's great because the goal in behavioral finance and in the UC neuroscience is not to have a giant list of investor mistakes. It's to have a small list of investor mistakes and to kind of consolidate it scientifically into, you know, three things or four things. So that's one area in which we've we've made some instant progress in identifying these two different anomalies, which don't have to be related, but really do seem to be deeply rooted in some kind of common neural circuitry. Okay, great. Uh, let's go to the next category, Colin, asset pricing. And I know we're going to talk about bubbles here. Uh, what do we need to know uh, from the standpoint of psychology and neuroscience and any other new techniques? Uh, so general general asset pricing is actually where where most of empirical finance lived for a very long time until people had better data on individual level stocks, uh, ticker quality data, international data. And so the big question is, you know, are, are stock markets, do stock markets overreact? Does the efficient markets hypothesis hold, you know, suggesting that there's no public inf available information that isn't in there, that the markets price correctly? And that's a pretty good first approximation. But one way to see behavioral finance is working past that to get into, you know, where you might see these deviations and so forth. And so uh, one neuroscientific experiment we worked on was to try to understand bubbles uh, and uh, as a function of what neural circuitry is generating, you know, both a run-up in, in, in stocks and then more, more interestingly, the crash. And the main challenge with studying price bubbles for a, forever has been, you know, is it in a bubble or not? And bubbles are typically defined as where price is persistently above a fundamental. But what's the fundamental? So there's been a few cases like um, closed-end mutual funds or um, uh, certain kinds of equity carve-outs where, where there should be a relationship between two or three things that are traded in the markets or derivative pricing in which, in principle, you might be able to, to identify pricing mistakes. But they're kind of quirky and rare. So in the lab, of course, you can create assets and we can um, – we can give the assets fundamental value by telling subjects, for example, you're going to you're going to buy and sell an artificial share that lives in your computer. If at the end of each trading period, you're going to get a dollar if you hold that share, and it's going to last for a certain number of periods. And then, you know, we've created a fundamental value, and you can write down an equation that says if they're trading at a rational price, and they're, they're they have reasonable expectations about the future, the price should be 14 or some number that we can control. It happens to be 14 in the experiments we did. And so what what we did was to have groups of about 20 people buying and selling this at whatever price they wanted. We you know we gave them no price guidance. We just said if you hold these things here's the money you're going to get from us. But the price is completely up to you over a 50 periods of trading. And typically what you see is uh sometimes the prices are very close to the fundamental value which is 14, but the typical price goes up to about 45 and after about 30 periods of trading it starts to crash, crashes very sharply. And at the end of the experimental session, it is at 14. So we know that they can price the stocks correctly at the beginning and the end, but the typical pattern in between is, is an increase in price followed by a sharp crash. And what the neuroscience tells you is what's going on in the brain during those periods of time. And the answer is, from, from just this one tentative study, is during the price run-up, there's activity in an area of ventral striatum, very much like what Carrie mentioned, which seems to be encoding realization utility. And the pe people who trade the most aggressively based on this brain activity are the ones who are kind of generating the bubble and fueling it. And the crash is, got, is neuroscientifically in a way more interesting, a little bit surprising. Um, about five or ten periods of trading periods before the crashes occur, 
certain traders get a, a kind of early warning signal in a region called insular cortex, which is an area of the brain that's involved for kind of integrating emotions and cognitions. And it's particularly involved in, if you're in pain, insular cortex. If, there, if you see a financial risk that's looming, insular cortex. If you're being excluded socially, that seems to create a kind of social pain, insular cortex. If you're being choked, you see something disgusting. All these things that make people kind of uncomfortable, literally in their body and in their brain, are active in this insular cortex. And so the, the subgroup of traders who have activity in insula is, you know, they're kind of worried about the future, like something's wrong here. The price is really high and, and you know, there's only 20 more periods of trading left when there's this insular warning signal and then they sell uh, aggressively based on the warning signal. That's what actually precipitates the crash. And those traders who are kind of listening to the insula are the ones who make the most money. So we have a because they were first because they, 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 they basically they had a, a, an alert warning signal and traded on that basis, yeah. and so this was the the, the first kind of clear glimpse of a, a, how a couple of systems in the brain uh, operating differently in different people could be responsible for kind of the creation of bubbles and the crashes. Uh, but we're, we're you know we're a long way away from a trading strategy, right? Is that these are uh, student subjects trading a very artificial asset, but at least it's it's giving us some kind of candidate ideas of where you might see see sure. these combinations of neural circuitry uh, that may be present in, in um, other types of asset pricing, like in, in tech stocks and uh, maybe real estate and so on. Yeah, it's uh, interesting because the paper also identifies theory of mind as a factor here, the idea that you're not just trying to figure out what something's worth, you're trying to figure out what other people think that thing is worth and trading on that. The obvious uh, thing to note there is like the Keynesian beauty contest, right? Applied to trading strategies, it sounds like essentially you're trying to figure out the neuropsychology of the Keynesian beauty contest. Yes, exactly. So the, the theory of mind you mentioned or mentalizing is something that we understood really pretty well now. So, you, you know, I, we, we can do tasks in a certain way. Like we ask them, why is somebody doing something compared to how are they doing it? You know, moving their own hand. And that difference is generating this mentalizing or theory of mind circuitry. And then we can try to see if people who are extremely good, you know, do they have lots of activity there and the, the correlation with the activity in the circuitry is associated with the performance, you know, does that make a trader? Okay. Um, I'll add one quick thing. Uh, it kind of follows a little bit on Colin's discussion of bubbles, uh, which is this idea of investor mood that we talk about. Um, so you could can imagine that if you know if, if the entire market you know one day wakes up and is in an amazing mood, a very good mood, this could actually change their behavior and maybe bid up asset prices a little bit. Now we know a little bit more about this, and we survey a little bit of this research in the paper. It's, but by the way, it's pretty amusing. In other words, if your country wins the World Cup the next day, your stock market yeah, goes it, up just it because sounds, of that. It it's sounds, raining. I mean, it's pretty funny. It does sound funny, but the, the, the data is there, and and I think it's it's a real phenomenon for sure. I think. Where where we can go from there is to try and understand the psychology and the neuroscience of actually what drives the link between mood and then investors' decision to actually you know bid up the price. There, there's two possibilities, or at least two possibilities. One is the mood makes you just more optimistic in the sense that you now believe that the future stock market is going to be higher than it is today. The other possibility is that, and this is not mutually exclusive, is that it just decreases your risk aversion. You you just act more risky, and therefore you're willing you're more willing to hold riskier assets, or it could be a combination of the both. And I think kind of the next phase of research in, in, um, in, in testing this stuff is to, to really understand uh, the mechanism at the psychological and, and uh, neural level. Okay. Let's hit that fourth category, which is corporate management. Kerry, uh, managers, CEOs, they uh, have a reputation for being hubristic. They like empathy. 
They attribute their success more to their own skill than to circumstance or luck. Uh, how does all this matter? Yeah, uh, those those traits are all there for CEOs. <laughs> um, they they have other traits as well. You know, I think one part of um, you know this idea of these CEOs becoming overconfident. There's some theories out there in the behavioral literature which say that this overconfidence arises from experience, from experience on the job or experience before they even enter the job. And there's some really new, beautiful evidence over the last five years or so by the economists uh, Ulrike Malmandier and Stefan Nagel, who have shown um, not only in CEOs, but also um, just in the population as a whole, that experience early on in life can really manifest and, and stay persistent within your economic decisions later in life. So for example, if you have a large success, let's say as a CEO early on in your career, this could then generate a, a kind of a, a large amount of overconfidence. You could then, therefore, um, be, um, you know, think that you should go over and, and uh, engage in higher M and A. Um, you become a bigger risk taker, in other words, because you assume that the early success will replicate itself and everything else you try. Right, or it could be that you misperceive your own skill uh, as a manager. So you could either have an upward bias, um, thinking that you're actually a more skilled worker, worker than you are, or it could be that you're over precise. Uh, you have a you, you know you 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 believe that um, you're kind of too confident in what your skill is, and so both of those things could lead to you taking risk, which may seem excessive, uh, considering what the actual fundamentals of the company are. Sure, uh, there's also just a lot of uh, examples of CEOs who do wonderful work at one company where their particular strategy uh, was a great success. Maybe later they get hired to replicate that at another company, and it's a huge flop. In other words, that your skill set isn't always translatable from one company to the next. Sometimes the circumstance you're in might just be a really good fit for what you're doing, which isn't to denigrate the skill set. It might still be unique. It might still be uh, incredibly useful, but it doesn't work in every case. One thing psychologists have studied for ages and is starting to come into economics a bit is the idea of a state versus a trait. And, you know, a trait is something, a persistent skill, like I'm a general CEO that can manage all kinds of things. And a state is a particular set of circumstances. It might be an era of time. It might be, you know, a Silicon Valley disruption in a, in a lightly regulated industry, or it might be a easy, you know, there's a period of time with easy credit where you need to borrow to grow your company. And, and it's pretty hard to disentangle success and luck. And so w one way to think of that is, is, is that it's easy to, to attribute a CEO's skill to a stable to success and not just a transitory luck and then to over extrapolate what's going to happen next time. So I think that the general view in psychology is that we're probably a little bit too quick to attribute cause and to persistent to traits as opposed to fortunate circumstances. One specific area uh, that you guys mentioned was in terms of uh, capital allocation, uh, that some CEOs are more likely to, especially when debt is cheap, to debt finance their balance sheets, essentially. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah. So one of the one of the strongest things that goes back to uh, Richard Roll's article about hubris and others, there's no question the CEOs are kind of chosen for confidence and and are confident. But the other the other question is overconfidence. Are they more confident than is warranted in certain ways? And so this has been measured a bunch of ways, like psychometric tests, you know, that you might give to people working in a company. Um, also. One of the nicest hallmarks is if CEOs have a lot of options and there are formulas to tell you when you should be actually optimally exercising your options, even if you think your company is great. And the CEOs tend to hang on too long to their options, which is, a, in other words, they're not just being overconfident in, in actions they take on behalf of the companies and, and finance policies, but in terms of their own sort of portfolios. And that overconfidence tend to be associated with 
with riskier corporate behavior, you know, more leverage, uh, maybe over acquiring firms, overpaying perhaps in M&A and uh, a bunch of things like that. Okay. Let's close by talking about the next step. In other words, how do you move towards uh, making more of these findings uh, applicable in practice? Colin mentioned earlier that some of the neuroscience was uh, starting to identify candidates uh, for some of these causal mechanisms, right? So talk about what happens next. How, how early are we in this process of using all these new data sets, whether it's Google logins, whether it's attention-based stuff, whether it's neuroscience and neuroimaging, uh, are we in the early stages still, or are we pretty far along in terms of how how long from now it'll be uh, when some of this stuff is applicable to uh, actual companies and how they make their decisions? Uh, I think some of it's fairly far along. For example, household finance. There's a the the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has an annual research conference, and it used to be when they were first starting, they would get forty or fifty academic papers. Um, and most of them about, you know, how much are people saving enough for retirement? Sort of a narrow set of interesting, important questions, but narrow. And last year they got 300 papers or something like that. And they're, and they're all interesting papers from all over the world, from different, uh, for, you know, banks are very interested in doing experiments and understanding their customers, regulators are. There often are natural experiments, you know, where something happened, a weird thing happened in one country that, that exposed one group of people to something and another people didn't get exposed. So it's like a lab experiment times one million. And so um, that data is pretty far along. The neuroscientific data um, and also there's things like genetic data, you know, how heritable are, uh, are your decisions about stock and bond investment and how heritable um, are, are other things that are financial. You know, those kinds of data are newer and we're going to start to get a better and better idea, particularly about the brain imaging. Okay. Yeah, I think overall we're probably still pretty early on in a lot of this stuff. Um, one application that I often get asked about uh, when, I, when I talk about my work, uh, in particular on individual, uh, individual investor biases, is can I use this stuff to recruit my employees? Uh, or rather, can I use this stuff to not recruit the ones I don't want? Uh, and, and what I mean by that a little bit is we found a little bit in those studies on disposition and repurchase, these trading biases, that they tend to be correlated within individual, suggesting that there may be a trait that's you know perhaps a little bit more general, more 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 personality general uh, that you know someone would not want to hire uh, in a in a potential trader, and you know the way we stumbled on that a little bit as as Colin mentioned was because we found the same neural circuitry was activated at the moment when both of those um, trading errors were being generated. So you know I don't think right now it's going to be feasible for you know a trading shop to go out and when they run their interviews scan people and and actually see what what type or how much activation is actually occurring at this particular moment. But certainly what I can see happening in the next maybe 10 years or so is finding correlates of that neural activity, which are much easier to measure. Um, and I think once we get a better understanding of the theories that ultimately drive these trading biases, that'll point us in a direction where we can empirically measure these variables at a much more efficient and cheaper level, level which I think will be quite productive for, for a lot of firms in their hiring. I've got uh, what might be a difficult meta question. The FT ran an article, I believe a few days ago, on a couple of banks, and I forget which banks, but they were going to start trying to identify the psychological traits of like their best performers and then try to match those traits with the people that they were recruiting out of college. I guess uh, I wonder if you think that is likely to continue. And are there maybe some hidden costs to doing that kind of thing? Is it possible that you end up with essentially a company full of the same kind of people and then you lack the benefits of, I guess, a little bit more heterogeneity in terms of like people's psychological makeup? 
for ages, actually, a lot of psychometrics of trying to put people in the right jobs happened in World War II because suddenly you had millions of people being drafted and they're trying to figure out who should be an officer or not. And so um, for decades, companies have tried various you know, sort of psychometric tools. I think one lesson from neuroscience and cognitive cognitive science is that if you can classify people and, and predict in any way, it's going to have to be a wide range of variables. But you also don't want to overfit, which is similar to the heterogeneity you're talking about, which means, you know, with the last three traders we had were people from Columbia named uh, Ted or Bob. And so all the Columbia Ted Bobs are going to be the thing we look for next. That's what we call overfitting or, you know, overfitting the pattern. So you have to guard against that. Fortunately, as you have more and more data, either in one company or across companies, the kind of data, you know, academics and uh, companies and government employees often have, you can, you know, you, you can avoid overfitting in a pretty sensible way. And my hope also is that the, the, the interesting variables might be things which you know, aren't self-reports, you know, where people check off a box that says, yes, I really like risk or normally I'm cautious. Uh, but, you know, they're biological things that are hidden and, or, or they may also have to be, they may have to do with not just like traits and propensities, but the capacity to learn and adjust. So in, in sports genetics, for example, it turns out that you know, certain body types make people better athletes in certain sports, but there's also a concept of trainability. You know, some people are terrific in high school and they never really get much better and others have a really steep learning curve. And so if you're thinking about long run behavior, say, of traders, you know, you want to think about where they start and where they can end up. Kerry, last word to you. Um, okay. Well, I think, yeah, building on what, what Colin's saying here, or the direction I think uh, a lot of this stuff could go as far as the research is, you know, a lot of this stuff you know, recruiters uh, will want to, you know, see what types, you know, what personality traits are attractive. There's also the question of whether these traits are malleable. Can they change over time as a function of the environment that they're put in? So, for instance, you can imagine, you know, a mutual fund manager comes into the job and has a particular type of preferences where he doesn't care so much maybe about relative standing. And as we know, you know, compensation in industry is heavily uh, dependent on in how their standings are in, um, you know, in, in the industry themselves. That may actually change their preference structure and their decision-making uh, within, within their professional life, but also outside of it. So I think it becomes a very rich area of study to try and understand the interaction of experience and these kind of innate preferences. So um, I look forward to working on that stuff myself very soon. All right. Interesting point and a good place to finish. Uh, Colin, Kerry, thanks for talking to Alpha Chat. Thanks. My pleasure. And that's the end of my interview with Carrie and Colin. Uh, I forgot to ask their long-form recommendations, but I'll leave you with one of my own. I've just finished reading TV The Book, Two Experts Pick the Greatest American Shows of All Time. It's by Alan Sevenwall and Matt Zoller-Seitz. These are two of my favorite TV critics. Uh, but the book should be read less as a definitive ranking and more as a celebration of how TV can really embed you in a world of its own making, and in a way that's not necessarily better than, but different from how books or even movies try to do the same thing. And the book ranks the top shows of all time and is really wonderful and illuminating essays about each of them. But using the author's system, there's a five-way tie for first place, and probably the best part of the book is the debate where the two authors uh, try to argue about how to rank those five. I won't give away which show's number one, but the five that they considered were The Wire, Breaking Bad, The Simpsons, Cheers, and The Sopranos. It's really great. That's our show for today. Once again, you can get a hold of us at alphachat at ft.com via email. You can also call us at 917 551 
5012. That's plus one country code for those of our listeners who are overseas. It's a U.S. number. Rate the show. Leave us a review on iTunes. I'm not exaggerating when each week I tell you that it really helps people find the show and it helps us out as well because we want to know what you think. Show notes are going to be at ft.com forward slash alpha chat as always. And once again, the best decision I've ever made isn't a financial one, but rather collaborating with the amazing Amy Keene, the producer and editor of this show. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat.